what Oliver is saying is that you should not try and emulate Elon Musk and communicate like Elon Musk. Please, please, please do not. On, on behalf yes. of every single investor out there, I, I, I implore you, please. Elon, Elon does it well because he's authentic. That's, that's his style. Uh, please do not think that you can replicate that easily. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Hey folks, Garrett here. In this latest episode of the Most Awesome Founder podcast, I'm back with my co-host and partner in crime, Professor Dries Fonts, Chair of Entrepreneurship, Innovation, and Technological Transformation at Mehau. Dries, in, in all sincerity, man, these episodes we host together really are my favorites. They're kind of this quirky symbiosis of uh, your theoretical and my experiential kind of background and how we build ventures and kind of foster innovation. So. As always, these are my faves, and I'm glad to be sitting here doing it with you, mate. Yes, it's always great to do the school together. So. so today we're doing something we've never really done before. Not only are we bringing back guests from previous episodes, but we're bringing them back together. And why would we do such a thing? It's because these two just wrote a book together that I think is not only a groundbreaking publication, but also one that's really relevant for the founders and entrepreneurs in our audience. So without further ado, let's welcome back our dear friends, Oliver Oust and Jag Singh. Coming to you from WHU, on the banks of the Rhine River, in beautiful Fallendar, Germany, this is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Oliver, Jag, welcome hey. to the show, mate. Good to have you guys back. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having I us. Hear, I can hear the crowd going wild. Woo! Shh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, I love visualization. That's what brings the energy. So, cool. Well, I'll do a quick introduction of you guys. Um, since you've been here before, I think much of our audience know a little bit about your fascinating backstories. So I'll keep it kind of short so we can focus on the main topic at hand, which is your latest publication. So folks, you guys may remember Jag Singh. He was part of episode seven way back when in 2019. Uh, at that time, Jag and I discussed angel investing and startup accelerators. Back then, Jag was the managing director of Techstars Berlin and one of Europe's most active angel investors. Today, Jag is managing partner of Berlin-based venture capital fund Angel Invest, providing portfolio founders not only capital, but the experience of a four-time founder with multiple exits, deep political strategy chops, and approaches to marketing and communications that I think are arguably unmatched in the VC world. And of course, you may remember Oliver Oust from episode 27 on mastering communications for startups. Oliver's the founder and CEO of EO Ipso Communications, a best-selling author four times over, I believe now, and one of Europe's leading communications and personal branding experts. Oliver's breadth of experience is almost as broad as his wisdom. 
from leading communications for EasyJet in its early days to advising Fortune 50 CEOs, mentoring and investing in high-growth startups, to hosting Speak Like a CEO, his category-defining podcast on CEO communications. And although their resumes stand tall on their own, what's perhaps most interesting for us today is that these two gentlemen have come together to write what has arguably become the defining book on startup communications. It's called Message Machine, How Communications Will Make You an Unstoppable Founder. Now, full disclosure, I am a bit biased. I've been reading excerpts of this book for quite a few months now, but I can honestly say that each time I pick it up, I take away another actionable nugget. It's uh, really a great tool for startups that want to communicate with investors, with team members, customers, prospects, or virtually anyone they interact with in their roles of founders. So without further ado, Oliver Jag, welcome back. Let's do this. Excited to talk about your new book. Likewise. Thank you, Garrett. Yeah, thank you, Garrett. I mean, you 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 sell us better than our moms do. I, I got to say, uh, it, it's, it's awesome to be here with you and Trish. Thanks for having us. And uh, I'm I'm going to be the Vanna White to uh, Oliver's Pat Sajak, and, and I'm going to going to plug our book as much as we can, visually and on on audio. But again, thank you for having us. Really, it's really awesome to be here. Well, it's great yeah, to have it's you. Maybe good to say it's maybe good to say that Garrett is also quoted in your book, not I saw when I was reading it. So there is a yes, with profanities, book. indeed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Would it would it go any other way? Really, I feel like it would be off brand if I wasn't a little bit more colorful. I, I'm still I'm still visualizing the fact that Jag is Vanna White and and Oliver is Pat Sajak. I, sorry, Oliver. I think Jag got the pretty one in the in the partnership. But I don't even know who these people are. No, no, that's a that's a very uh, American <laughs> reference. Wheel of Fortune from <laughs> the Wheel of Fortune 90s. Anyway. <laughs> Anyway, yeah. So, you know, as you guys know, we usually start off our episodes uh, with founder stories, a little bit of storytelling, which of course is also a part of your book. Um, but in this case, I think everyone's heard your stories, so whether I butchered it or not, uh, they got a little bit of a snippet for me. But let's start with a story of a different kind, which is how you two guys came together. How did you meet? What catalyzed you to join forces to uh, write this awesome new book? Yeah, so Jack and I know each other, have known each other for some years as part of the Berlin ecosystem. And a couple of years ago, Jack and I met for coffee and we were talking about, uh, you know, what Jack would do next and what my plans were. And we basically talked about writing books. And we both realized that the seminar book on startup communications does not exist. We knew this because we were looking for it, because we wanted to read it. And when you can't find the book, you absolutely want to read. And you think that lots of people out there should read because it's useful and that knowledge is actually really hard to access for founders. So we decided to do it together. And we thought we'd be done in a few months because hell, you know, how hard can it be? Because we already know all this stuff. So it's basically just writing it down from Jack's investor perspective and from my communications perspective and our different backgrounds. So, you know, it would be done in a jiffy. And of course it wasn't. So it was much harder, right, Jack? Totally right. And, and there comes a point where you're halfway through the book and then uh, you get the, uh, the, the, the pesky, you know, in early stage investor, i.e. me saying, actually, you know what, 
I hate all of this. Like, I we we should we should we should scrap this. Like, I wouldn't read this crap. And then you go through the process, and then Oliver says the same thing like three months later. So you kind of get to a point where you start to realize, okay, actually, like we're we're onto something. Number one, because we're having real, uh, uh we're ha- we're having real issues reconciling some of our our differences from our different backgrounds. You, Oliver's got an unparalleled, um. Uh, experience with crisis comms, for example, um, and also team, you know, teams and structures. And I'm much more focused, and I'm, I tend to look at things with my current job as an early stage investor, where I wouldn't actually invest in a company that had a CMO. If if a, if a CEO is spending all its all his time, all their time, um, uh, uh, you know, in a, in a crisis room simulation, they're probably not doing the right job at this point. And so, how do you get those two? Uh, viewpoints. How do you get the, all that experience across different stages um, into something that also can translate and 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 um, it can be easily read by a founder at different stages? And I, I got to say, I mean, we we it was a labor of love. We spent a lot of time and 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 effort on it, but we got there in the end, and and we're pretty pleased with the result. And um, you know. I, I got to say, it, it is a badge of honor. Oliver's done this many times now, but it was—it's the first book that I've ever written, um, and it's now you know on on some bestseller list on Amazon. So it, there does come a point where you sort of look at it and go, "All right, that was worth it." Mm-hmm. Took like t- took a year longer than it expected, but it was <laughs> worth it. Yeah, and maybe it's, it's it's worth just pointing out what kind of book this is. So we set out and thought maybe it could be a method book, right? So if you set up a startup and you need to think about communication, so how do you do this? And maybe there are ten steps, and each step is a chapter. Boom, 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 easy. We figured out there is no recipe like that, at least not for you know beyond Series A, say, or beyond seed stage. You know, in the very early steps, yes, but these are already well documented. So for us, it was more about filling the gap between, let's say, post seed stage to pre-IPO, where there's really little about what startups and scale-ups should do. Right, so a lot about very early and a lot about post-IPO companies, but not a lot about the company that's between one year old and maybe seven years old. But that's really what people need to know, and we figured that. That we needed to write a principles book. So in the book, there are 92 principles rather than 10 steps in a method. Methods get old, right? Next year, you have a different method. So things evolve. But the principles we think are pretty evergreen. You know, once you internalize these 92 principles, you can, in theory, apply these to every situation you're in as a founder. And then we categorize it to internal, external, and financial communications, because these are the three big stakeholder groups. So financial, your investors and wannabe investors, then internally, it's mostly your talent, the people you work with every day, and then it's external customers, media, intermediaries, um, you know, the general public, regulators, and so on. Do you see what I mean, though? Like Oliver's just full of information, and I'm like Oliver, we got to work on the introduction. Like this is just the introduction. Let's not let's not cram everything <laughs> into the beginning, right? And, and and so this is this is the beauty of writing a book with with you know, from from two different perspectives, uh, two very different kind of communication styles. Uh, and I I think like at the end of the day, again, like I said, the the, the proof is in the pudding, and and we we got the book out just in time for uh, Christmas last year. And, and uh, we're we're also getting some good feedback, so we're pretty excited about that. Awesome, awesome. So let let's jump into the meat and potatoes. Oliver already talked about the ninety two principles, but I want to take it uh, a, a few steps back because you guys have one chapter with some language behind it and content around it that really resonates, and it's something I talk about with startup founders a lot, and it's the concept of message market fit. 
You know, I think a lot of classrooms, a lot of literature talks about product market fit, but I think a lot of entrepreneurs maybe aren't familiar with this concept. So maybe you could kick things off with this foundational piece. What is message market fit? Why is it important to founders? And what do you see as some tips or tricks that founders can kind of get to it more effectively or faster? Um, so this is where it gets tricky because not all startups are the same. It, you could be a B2C company or, or a B2B company. You could be a very early stage pre-product, sorry, pre-product, pre-revenue, pre almost pre-everything. And then there's companies that are at series B. Um, and so basically I think the, 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 the way that we're thinking about it, you know, for pre-growth or, or pre-series B startups, it's hard to even define product market fit. Um, Steve Blank, who's you know a, a uh, renowned uh, startup guru, says that it's something somewhere between customer validation and customer creation. And then you have another uh, uh, heavyweight in the in the startup ecosystem, Mark Andreessen, um, who says it's it's actually about being in a good market with a product that can actually satisfy that market. Um, and and then you have the challenge where. And Garrett, you, you know, and and Dries, you, you guys know this from um, uh, your experience working with very early stage startups. Founders often conflate product market fit with problem solution fit, and so there, there's no shortage of definitions. There's no shortage of ways to to calculate. Everyone's got a view on you know which one's a better way of doing it, and and this is kind of why we sort of wanted to take a step back and say, okay, let's if product market fit describes the stage of a startup where. Um, you've developed a, the the product and it serves a particular type of customer. Um, and, and then you could also say, well, but any business needs customers, right? And customers need to be persuaded uh, that your product or service is the best solution to that problem. And that's where the messaging comes in. Um, Oliver loves to, to um, uh, you know, emphasize i've seen oliver coach founders firsthand early stage founders coach hand and he often reminds them that build it and they will come doesn't work right the target audience cares about you know their own needs their, their problems their feelings what whether or not they had what what they had for breakfast or whether or not they had breakfast uh matters just as much as you know how you emphasize your product um so again it's not about you or or, or your product it's and your job as as a founder is to make them care so if you do and when you do, then a, then a whole bunch of paths open up to, to scaling, which is where a Series C startup or a growth stage startup would, would care a little bit less about product market fit because it's already been baked into their processes. They're now looking at, at really scaling. And so this is where message market fit kind of applies across the whole spectrum. And uh, you know, ultimately, I think it's why every successful company needs to achieve both product market fit and message market fit. Yeah, exactly. And on the timeline, you probably want to start with product, right? You you need a product so you can actually talk about it and make sure it finds the hands into customers and investors get invested in it and people can join the company. So there's a bit of that. But what we say, once you get past seed stage and hopefully you have product market fit, however, however you want to define it, you should really focus as a founder on achieving message market fit because it will make your life so much easier. Now, if you have the right concepts, the right words, the right messages, stories to describe what you do, why you do it and for whom it is good and what they 
get out of it. Actually, you attract investors, you attract customers, you don't have to chase them, and you also attract the top talent, and you attract the right talent, actually a good fit for you. So what we are saying is that once you get to product market fit, your top priority as a CEO, founder, should be to get to message market fit. Because if you have both, then you actually are in a very good position to scale the company and make it successful. And that's one of the key ideas of the book, really, and that's why it's called Message Machine. It's message market fit, product market fit. You need both. If you have both, you're probably going to be very successful. And can you so explain to me the, the essential difference between message market fit and product market fit? So what if, if you have to stand in front of the students that I normally have and you want to explain message founder fit what what definition would you give to the students sorry i think this is this is the i think the easiest way to think about this is um if if oliver and i think about message market nirvana it's that you've managed to enter a conversation that's already taking place in the heads of your audience hmm. right does that does that kind of add hmm. a bit of clarity because the words that you're using to convince your target audience they need to resonate and hmm. it kind of you need to make them want to invest in invest in you, work for you, buy from you. And so you end up attracting the people who really want to be part of that journey um, uh, or, or your brand journey or your, or your product's journey. And then you feel it when I think you start talking to prospects or investors and and they just nod and they want to know more, right? That's when you sort of go, okay, they're not haggling over the, the, the price. They're actually recommending the brand. So it encompasses everything from word of mouth to the way that you position your product uh, to the way that they, you also need to listen to them, uh, repeat back whatever you're saying, however you're you're describing your product. Uh, does that, does yeah, that clarify? Can, can you can you maybe also give a kind of concrete example of a company that you would see as a as a great example of a company that has established this message market fit? I think every company that's successful and has a good product. So you see a lot of companies that have a good product, but never make it right in the end, they fail because people don't realize that there's a great product. And you see this now, for instance, look at AI solutions. So a lot of them will fail. Probably most of them will fail, even though they may be very useful. So the ones that win, they will be the ones that also have message market fit. And I think this message, that message to get that message across is really important in Europe. Uh, and I say this as a, as a continental Europe, and it's also good to check with, with other you know geographic backgrounds. Um, in America and also the UK, people are further advanced. So it's often interesting when you have German or European startups going to the US to Y Combinator, for instance, and they come back, or Techstars also, they do, um, they do workshops on that as well. And what they are being taught surprises them is that how important communications is, how important it is to really distill the difference between you and every other company out there. And that one thing that really makes a difference and find the right words that resonate with people. So I think, you know, in, in a way, this is a, is a kind of a bit of a European conversation and we want to make sure that we actually catch up and, you know, find, um, find this as useful as the Americans or the Brits do. And Jack, you, uh, you, you were nodding, so you have a concrete example here you want to add, I think. I think, uh, you know, it, it's easy to think of brands like um, Apple or, or companies like Netflix, but I, I like using um, slightly a little bit off-piste examples to, to talk about how Salesforce, for example, right? That's a company that's got real message market fit. Their customers uh, are willing to pay multi-year contracts, not because... Uh, not necessarily. I mean, 
I don't want to rain on Salesforce parade, but most of the customers who've, including myself, who've ever used Salesforce, hate the product. Uh, <laughs> but we love what it stands for. Right? It's 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 clunky. It's it's it, I mean, it's getting better. It's getting better. I gotta say. But uh, sorry, there goes your Salesforce sponsorship, guys. Uh, <laughs> uh, the point is, you know, it, it's not necessarily just about the product. It's a way that any customer can then very easily go on and and bring on another customer. The way that a customer communicates to uh, uh, you know your 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 other potential customers is also included as part of message marketing, and so I, I like to think of just not those those iconic sexy brands that you know, have a Super Bowl ad, but but also the ones that are that are building real infrastructure plays and, and uh, uh, working behind the scenes. Mm. Gotcha. Interesting, guys. I wanna I wanna move on to another topic, which I think is our maybe part of the little lesson plan, and I don't want you to give away all your secret sauce so you can maybe touch on these at a at a high level because i found it really interesting um you had me in chapter two when you started talking about message mastery and you highlighted five key aspects of communications that every founder should master um one of them really resonated with me that i find frustrating about listening <laughs> and how some founders are not very good at that but um you you really go into detail and provide some great wisdom on the five five points of message mastery. Can you share them and maybe if you want to highlight one or talk about why one and one or two in particular are really important? Yeah, very happy to. And um, this came about because we were thinking about the the communication skills that every founder can learn and needs to learn. And of course, they're very they're a lot. They're many, but they're also time poor. So we suggested basically the eighty twenty method. It's okay. What are the twenty percent of skills, communication skills, as a founder you need to raise money and beyond um, that give you eighty percent of the effect? And one I would point out is is definitely communicating with clarity. So have a clear message of a clear story to tell. And I think this is this is what you know my team and I spent a lot of time on with founders, with startups, to help them gain to that clarity and really clearly tell the story they want to tell. It's all kind of there, but to be honest, it's very hard when you're sitting inside a bottle to read the label, right? It's easier when you're looking at the bottle from the outside. So clarity is extremely important and it definitely beats complexity. Now, another one I would like to mention before I hand over to Jack is uh, storytelling. And this is where you are quoted, Garrett. <laughs> so <laughs> you, you famously said, I think in my podcast or, or you know, probably many places, um, that founders have to do two things, build shit and tell stories. So we obviously picked that up as the theme for our subchapter. And um, storytelling, you know, it's not Little Red Riding Hood. We're talking solid equity stories to raise money. There are stories to win customers. Why? Because that's how the human brain works. The human brain is not a, a fact-telling mechanism. It's, it's a storytelling device, right? We tell stories and we understand stories. And stories are extremely memorable. But they also need to follow a certain structure to trigger those neurotransmitters, you, you like to describe um, and so we describe that and you know there there is um, there are certain steps you need to follow to tell a good story in business now I kick it over to Jack um, he wrote the listening part which is not surprising <laughs> like Gary had very little to add on the, you know how to be a good listener <laughs> well I, I kind of borrowed a lot of um, uh, or I took a lot of inspiration you know from my own journey as a founder and then having been an investor now for for over for the better part of a decade. And I've had the privilege of working with some incredibly talented investors and 
And you know, it, it, one of them, for example, is David Cohen, right? He's a founder of TechStars. Um, uh, you know, early one of the first investors in Uber, Twilio, SandGrid, a whole host of unicorn companies. And and he was the one who kind of talked to me about this whole listening and active listening uh, uh, concept. As when you're a founder, you want to be able to respond to the the conversation flow of that you're having with an investor and so and it applies also just to investors by the way it applies i mean i think it applies uh, in a universal context but but what we were trying to get across is there's a set of core set of skills that every founder really needs to master and, and again there's a bunch of books there's a bunch of resources that that already teach founders how to fundraise the the tactics that you can you can uh uh, deploy in order to run a very tight fundraising process, and I think it's it's even more relevant in in times like these when when capital is kind of drying up, and so we, we kind of drilled it or, or narrowed it down to those five basic skills. And again, there was a lot of there was a length. Let's just say there was a lengthy debate about um, which, which specific skills. But the the reason why we ended up with these was just because again it came from personal experience, both as a founder. I, I wish I'd listened more. Uh, to how my investors were responding to the the things that I was saying, I wish I'd listened more to my employees when I ran a company. I wish I'd, I'd listened more uh, across the board. And so, um, there, there's a great quote from from Sam Altman. I think we included it in the book, where where he he sort of said, you know, the one of the ways that he wants to vet an early stage company is by thinking about their communication uh, skills. And so the, the five concepts that we, we uh, or the five key aspects of communication that we uh, uh, wrote about in the book, you know, Sam kind of summed it up, right? And he's like, are they good communicators, basically? Because if someone can't communicate pro- properly or clearly, then it's a real problem. And, and that's as simple as it gets. Mm-hmm. Um, the the there there's 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 a, there's a I mean I, I'm I'm obviously plugging the book for for just over twenty bucks you can get it on Amazon uh, <laughs> uh, but I, the, the point is again you know once you communicate with with exceptional clarity and then and and you can identify and and I I understand your audiences a whole lot of things just fall into place and and that's really what we we wanted to get across that your personal communication skills. Are probably one of the biggest um, determinants in in whether or not your fundraising is going to be successful. I, I want to ask a follow up on this because um, I really I really like the way you structure those tools. They're really kind of e- and skills that are really kind of easy to understand. But one of the questions that came to my mind is, what are the soft skills that make people the masters? Right. It's one thing to you know, actively listen or, you know, to, to communicate with clarity that you that can be kind of trained these specific actions. But I think about what makes people masters and it's those soft skills like empathy or, or compassion or whatnot. Do you find that there's, is there a level up that differentiates the good from the great when it comes to mastering these techniques? Are there, are there certain types of personas that will excel at it while others would just be competent and maybe before you before you answer because i think this is a crucial question because i at, at VAU, i really spent a lot of time with my students to train them in storytelling and so the first thing that i'm saying look if you pitch a startup it's not a fucking mckinsey presentation because our students tend to be very good in mckinsey presentations and very bad in storytelling 
And then I give them all the kind of basic stuff that you also very nicely, I think, explain in the book. And then I look at their pitches and they're still terrible. And typically there will be two uh, exceptions with great storytelling. And typically this will be the American students in my classroom that do a great job in pitching. So there seems to be something intangible that seems to be very difficult to kind of codify which makes a distinction between a good storyteller and a bad storyteller. And so I really would like to know how can we make our students better storytellers? I, I love those questions. Um, and this is a bugbear. I, I completely share that with you, Dries. And to my, I mean, at the meta level, it is definitely was the case in Europe. That's from Aristotle, from the ancient Greeks to at least JFK and you know, that point in time. Storytelling and communications in general, oratory, those were key leadership skills. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't imagine being a leader of any sort, of any, in any organization, unless you mastered these skills, right? In the last few decades, we've given in to some sort of, um, let's say, technocratic image of how we communicate in organizations. That is terrible. But I think the good news is we're moving away from that because I think we all realize and the people we work with um, also realize that this is not going to be successful going forward. So that's sort of, when I look at it big picture, that's the underlying reason. We're not teaching these skills, at least not in Europe, in schools or universities. On the contrary, we're teaching things the wrong way. We're teaching fact-telling instead of storytelling. Yep. Everyone can tell facts. You know, facts are out there. I can go Wikipedia, lots of facts. I can go and ask ChatGPT, lots of facts, right? But what, what we're talking about is the human element. So and to answer to sort of Lupe and Garrett's question, um, you know, what's that extra level that gets you from good to great? I would say two things, you know, in addition to empathy and the things you mentioned. One is you have to take it really seriously. You have to sit down and learn the skills, the terrible things you were taught in the last 20 years. You have to do that. You have to go through that process and then open your mind to the um, actual communication skills. And everyone can learn these, right? It doesn't matter if you're introvert or extrovert. In fact, I find that introverts often become better communicators because they take it more seriously. Like an extrovert, he goes on stage or she goes on stage, just talk, right? <laughs> oh, I'm pretty good at this, I'm a natural, great, right? But they haven't really thought through what the key message is or what the call to action is, so they just go and talk. The introvert, however, um, spends a lot of time preparing, a lot of time practicing, and therefore manages to connect with the audience and deliver. So everyone can learn it. It's a set of skills and often it is just taking it seriously and spending some time developing it. I hear the objector saying, yeah, but I already have so much to do. Well, actually you save time. Being a good communicator saves you time. Yes, there's a bit of an upfront investment, but the return on time invested is extremely high because everything gets easier. It's easier to convince people. You only need to talk to 20 investors instead of 100, right? And learn it the hard way and so on. And then there's another dimension, which is psychology. And I think that's what Garrett alluded to. And obviously the neuroscience that is, you know, that is your expertise. I'm not gonna talk about neuroscience, but at the psychological level, for sure. People who are really good communicators usually understand the underlying psychological currents and are pretty good at reading people, whether that's, you know, um, the expressions, the nonverbal cues. And we talk about this in the book to some extent, but obviously it's, it's a whole different field. But there's a chapter on psychology and the underlying psychological concepts of um, communications. And actually it's the first chapter. So we start with that because for us, that's part of the foundation. The, just Dries, to go back to your, to your question, I think the the fundamental challenge in uh, that that I also see and and you know we invest pretty much globally right like we we have a fair chunk of our portfolio in 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 the U.S. We also have a bunch of American founders in Europe, um, and actually it's it's 
the European view or the European way of communicating just sometimes doesn't incorporate the audience. So to your point, you know, if if you're a um, well, if you've got a McKinsey-esque presentation and you're pitching it to a bunch of investors who actually will respond well to the McKinsey approach, great. Like get those three slides out and and knock them out, right? Um, and and you will actually have a good outcome. The challenge comes where when founders forget who they're speaking to, and so. The I think the the first pretty much in the first two or three minutes of any conversation opening conversation I have with any founder is to remind them that I'm not just uh, a homogenous investor right no no two investors are like I'm going to care more about some things versus some other investor and you're never going to be able to please everyone but it's just about getting to that point where you can immediately tell hopefully before you've even started the conversation that this is what this person actually wants and so this is the message that I'm going to deliver. Yeah. It's such an interesting point that, you know, you guys were talking about it a little bit in message market fit topic, which is like kind of meeting people where they are and reaching them in the language that, that they want to hear. And it's something that I tell founders a lot is, you know, pitching to investors is 80% research and 20% uh, presentation. It's understanding your audience as effectively as possible. And I think it's, you know, what's really challenging, especially with maybe Dries' students versus someone pitching to you, Jag, for an investment, is Dries' students are pitching to a, a, an audience, right, where you have a broad range of personalities and interests. Someone that's pitching to you is coming to Angel Invest or coming to Jag saying and should have done their homework to know how to meet you where you are, right? So I think Dries, this is my my hypothesis, and I would love to hear it from the group. But it's if you're pitching to a broad audience, it's really about your charisma. It's about the way you structure the story and whatnot. If you're pitching to an individual, it almost needs to be hyper personalized for that specific audience. Yeah, that might make sense. Yeah, but uh, that the type of audience also is a big kind of decisive factor here. Huh? But still, I sometimes get frustrated <laughs> about this topic. It's really like this crusade that I have. I want to make Germans better storytellers. And until now, my crusade, I would say, is not, not that successful. And to be fair, if Dries drops an F-bomb in a conversation, he means business. This really pisses him off. <laughs> yeah, but I think... And, and I think that's related to the book. It, it means that there is such a lot of untapped potential. Uh, if I see yeah. a lot of great ideas of our students and then it's like, yeah, you have a great idea, but you, you're just not selling it, you know, and that sure. is sometimes quite frustrating. But but you also want them to be authentic, right? And and you know, look, as someone who's run an accelerator, who, who ran uh, several accelerators, I, I think the, the, the I, I hated putting my founders in situations where they had to pitch to a, a room of, or, or they had to pitch to more than two or three people. Because mm -hmm. um, even the power dynamics there, and again, this is something that we talk about. How, how do you balance out the power dynamics of you being a founder and you, you're you under that spotlight and you're sweaty and you've got three minutes to, to convince a room full of faceless investors. There's 50 or 60 of them sitting there judging you based on how you speak and what you're wearing. That's you're already you're almost playing a a a, a, a you're 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 playing with a a, a a you're playing a rigged game there right like you're you're mm. playing with a with, with a bad hand already so how do you address that how do you rebalance that um and, and so like I don't think there's there's some there's some easy answer uh, maybe again for 
just over twenty dollars, you can find one in, in the book. Uh, uh, okay, that's going to get old now. I'm going to stop. I apologize. Um, but again, again, just you know, to the point. If everyone is is just a little bit more considerate and 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 spends a little bit more time thinking about what they want to say to who and how they want to say it, I think we'll we'll have like eighty percent progress um, uh, to your to your quandary trees. Yes. Okay. Let's talk about branding, um, because this is a topic that's one that I've been spending a lot of time thinking about lately, and you guys uh, really cover some interesting pieces in in chapter four. Um, and you you put a quote in there by Tom Hodgkinson that really uh, hit home for me, um, which is, a logo and a misspelled word do not make a brand. Um, and this is something maybe you can put on your board next time, Doris, for your class, because sometimes I feel like those <laughs> those pitch days are literally a logo and a misspelled word and a whole bunch of bullshit afterwards. <laughs> to be fair, first time, first effort, it's not so bad. But to you guys, in, in all seriousness, nice. Let's talk a little bit about what makes a brand and the different types of brands that you cover. And, you know, what are some key takeaways that that entrepreneurs should consider on their journey? How's that for a big, broad topic? Yeah. <laughs> I'll let you take it in the direction you want. So, uh, totally. So why bother, right? Why bother with branding? And some founders just don't and, you know, fair. But in particular, the B2C space and increasingly also the B2B space, I think it is important to really think through your brand at a relatively early stage. Why branding? Well, you know, that you don't want to compete on price, right? So if you don't have a strong brand, then you essentially have to compete on something else. Maybe you have a fantastic product, but then how would people find out about it if you're not out there singing the praises of your 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 brand? Um, and that, that remains usually then the price, so you compete on price. So in a way, the benefit of a brand is the delta between the commodity price and whatever you can charge with a strong brand. So that's pretty significant. And when you look at the biggest companies in the world, it's not a coincidence that they have very successful and very big and well-known global brands. Now, what is a brand? What is a brand, right? I mean, there are probably dozens, or there are dozens of definitions of a brand, and we settled on one that we found is really succinct, and you can actually remember rather than these very complicated definitions, which is the brand is the personality of the business. Personality of the business because it's not just the logo or the misspelled word or even the correctly spelled word or any word, like Salesforce, it's much more than that. So it's really the personality. So what do you think about that particular company when the company's not around or not in the person or the founder's not in the room so you take that with you and this implies that a brand really is emotional it is not something that is um, particularly rational it, it you can't really explain why it works in a rational way you can explain why it works emotionally so if you have an emotionally strong brand that has the right connotations wonderful then you're on to a winner now there, there are two elements or two dimensions to a brand the first dimension is what you control, right? Is is the name you pick, the logo, the visual representation, how you interact with customers, how you interact with your people. So a lot of elements you can control that all become part of your brand. And then there's the other element, which is outside your control. That's your reputation outside. So what do your customers, your investors think about you? You can try to shape it and you should, but you can't control it. And that's what makes branding so interesting. There's the part you can control and you hope that the things you can control will have a positive impact on the things you can't control, namely what's in people's minds, right? And this is this is what the chapter is about and what we are trying to give people as a sort of, this is how you think about it and this is how you go about it. 
this was one of the chapters that actually we we Oliver and I debated a lot because from the early stage investor perspective, I don't want you focusing on your brand at all, right? Like, and I get founders telling me that like brand, like they're, they've already hired a branding agency. And I'm like, this is the easiest way for me to tell you, like, I'm going to pass on the investment because it's just not a great use of your resources. Um, there are other things that you should be doing, but again, and, and I think we, we hit the tone quite, um, quite well in, in the book where we emphasized it's not necessarily something that you need to pay a lot of attention to, but it's something that you can consider and think about. And also you want to factor in how the brand um, evolves over time, right? And so to to Oliver's point, and and I think the again, the the if there's a TLDR, it's basically that founders just need to align their brand strategy with their business goals and their target audience. And when I say business goals, we all know that your business goals are going to change, right? Your business goals for year one are very different to year three to year seven. And so, just understanding that that is going to be a, there's going to be an evolution there, uh, where you can leverage your your you know existing product success to create a stronger brand identity. These are all the things that you want to consider how you want to continue whether well whether or not you want to invest in the brand, and then how you can invest in the brand. I want to ask you guys something that I thought was in my from my experience maybe more one of the more controversial topics in this chapter which is the idea of personal branding, especially personal branding from the founders, because I think there's a lot of pitfalls that can occur in that space. Like one thing is, is egos can go through the roof. Another thing is, and something that I've experienced is, you know, it's very difficult for founders, especially early founders that have only done it once or twice to separate their business from their identity, right? They get very attached to that journey of the business. Oftentimes, the founder or founders become the face of the business. And in the end, brands scale, people don't scale in the same way, right? And I think you're talking, like you talk a lot about accidental to intentional branding, how you grow a brand. And then you talk about this piece on personal branding, right? So is personal branding something that a venture only focuses on at a particular period in time? Or is this something that needs to grow as the business grows and the visibility and the kind of identification of those those people's brands continue to evolve i i don't think venture even looks at personal brand until much later it's media that really focuses on the personal brand mm -hmm. and so if you're leveraging media to then get to venture and to drive up drive hype and drive fomo then that's where it can work but you know it, it, investors we we we're i mean no I, I like to think we've gotten pretty good at at um, looking at how the personal brand of a founder can can drastically affect the uh, the the outcomes that we're we're looking at. But again, it, it's very much you know you're you're doing you're building that personal brand in order to leverage success. I I, I you know if, even if you think about some of the more um, uh, divisive or 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 um, uh, challenging kind of founders uh sam backman fried elizabeth holmes right they were leveraging their 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 personal brand again in order to to garner media attention which would then translate into either customers or investors um when, when elizabeth holmes was starting out like what was her personal brand like she you know she, back then she hadn't changed her voice she and i'm talking like super early right so these are all things that come a lot later once you've already established um 
the the kind of scalable, repeatable processes for for your company, and then it gets a bit easier to to build your personal brand. But again, this is this is an area that that Oliver and I spent a lot of time debating and 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 trying to get right in the book. But Jag, just to just to follow up on one piece, I want to hear your answer too, Oliver. Like, but Jag, you and I, I, I actually know of founder teams that you and I have both worked with that you know were very much like the founders loved being in the spotlight and the media loved the attention wanted like put a lot of effort sometimes more effort into the personal brand than into the brand of the business right where the founder was visible in in probably greater ways than it was like the company was just the validation or the reasoning why that person was getting more and more exposure it isn't there there's a delicate balance that needs to happen there where the founder should be present and have a brand but not too much that it they become the kind of center of gravity around it that that's fair i mean money follows attention right so it's hard to say we don't take it seriously and in some cases it's more important than others and we we bring an example in the book um you've probably heard of raisin it's a it's a fintech unicorn based in berlin and the yeah. founder um uh, tamas georgadze um he, he told me on the podcast and we picked this up in the book that um he had to build his personal brand he definitely didn't want to i mean this is a you know quite an introverted finance guy right but mm-hmm. he didn't want to do it but he had to do it he said uh, paraphrasing probably butchering his words but he said like look you know i was sitting in this little office and in berlin a guy with my name who would give me money right <laughs> it's completely unthinkable it sounded super fishy he said if you put it like that so he went out and used his, his, his persona to build a personal brand which then helped the company get investors and get customers. So uh, we're talking a case by case basis, um, but in general, uh, I err on the side of, yes, be out there, speak about the business, use the attention you're getting to follow up or to to make your business objectives reality, but yes, it can go too far. When you take a step back and look at businesses that have been a bit older and been through some phases, you often see three phases. The first phase is, phase is when personal brand actually can help get the business off the ground, right? As Jack said, you have the product, etc. but then how do you spread the word? And you use a personal brand, you use the founders and the voice and the face they can give to the business and the product. Phase two is where you want to focus on building the company brand because as you said, Joe, you know, the, the people don't really scale that well, the personal brand. So you need to scale the company brand also because you don't want the business to be dependent on the founder's brand that doesn't make it very valuable. So for many reasons, phase two is usually when you have a lot of people or several people in a leadership team who can speak on behalf of the company, but no one is necessarily that uber who who's immediately associated with it. And then often there's phase three where the, the original founders think about what am I gonna do next? And then they try to sort of reinvigorate their personal brand or build it in the first place if they haven't done so because they don't want to be associated only with that particular company they're thinking about what's going to happen next in my career and my life mm, gotcha. just just and just to double down on that point i think a great example is actually adam newman from WeWork, right mm-hmm. and so we we often think of adam as this i mean you can't think of a better example of, of uh, someone who, who kind of j- creates gravity, you know, whether it's whether it's in in real life or or uh, uh, in in the media, but people weren't flocking to WeWork because of his personality. Yeah, obviously a large part of his personality was embedded in the DNA of WeWork, but people were going to WeWork because of the way that 
they perceive the brand of WeWork, um, which is ultimately why he he was so uh, 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 he is so wealthy is because he managed to keep hold of the brand, right? The 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 brand rights for for WeWork. Um, and so again, like we often misplace um, uh, our, our perception of how strong someone's brand is, and we sort of you know, uh, if you ask investors, they're automatically going to think of Adam Newman when you say the word WeWork. But if you ask the person who's renting an office space in one of the you know many off WeWork spaces in, in Shanghai, they're not necessarily going to know who Adam Newman is. They, they don't care. They went to WeWork because of WeWork itself, the brand and what it stood for. So I, I think we want to make sure that, again, we don't conflate media attention with brand success. Right. Right. That's a good point. All right, guys, we have covered comms. We've recovered messaging. We've covered branding. We Let's also covered that the book is available on Amazon. For tw- for roughly 20 bucks. Yeah. Was it was 20 bucks. Leave a review, please. <laughs> You'll get another plug at the end, guys. Hold tight. But let's talk about another big, broad subject, because that's one of the things I loved about you guys' book, is you took very large topics that are are maybe a little bit complex and opaque, and you really kind of looked at them through the lens of communications, which I found super, super powerful. And one of the ones that I really appreciated, um, which I think is arguably the number one failure point for startups, is team and team building. You, know, you guys actually dedicated a whole chapter. I think it was chapter seven on on this topic of like the people behind the message machine. And you know what I'd like to ask you is like, what role does comms play in helping founders build like really exceptional teams? Right? What can they learn from your book about like you know the evolution of their venture and the human resources that kind of need to follow suit and evolve with them? Nobody wants to answer that question, or everybody's on mute. I can't tell. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I was muted. <laughs> uh, I, I think here, this is honestly the book is aimed at um, a founder who, and, and we've covered this now a, a couple of times, right? You go from being the face of the company to suddenly realizing that uh, the pricing page on your website speaks more about your company's status, your company's uh, uh, progression. Than you ever will, and, and I mean, this is something that I, as an investor, look at frequently, right? If if there's a there's a company that says we're selling to enterprise, and then and then you just go on their website, and it's a it's a very simple like landing page. You're like, I'm pretty sure you're not selling to a major enterprise. You're you're you've probably got maybe a LOI, maybe a pilot, but that's about it, right? Uh, so again, as founders grow and mature, not just as as founders, but also as, as people, they start to realize that. Um, they can't do it alone. And effective communication allows founders to, I guess, clearly convey their their vision, their goals, their expectations to their team. And, and this is where communication that is inspiring, that's motivating, um, can, can really help founders rally that team around a, a common vision and a purpose. And then and then when you realize that communication is is a two-way street, it's it's not just the founder, and, and again, this is where I sometimes worry that our our incessant need to drill founders or to help founders, you know, or uh, master the, the the pitch in front of a large room, um, they often forget that communication is a two way street, and and fa- effective founders 
need to listen uh, to to their team members and seek feedback just as much as they want to listen to uh, an investor. And so when you listen to your team's concerns, the ideas, suggestions, the, these founders can demonstrate the, the, that they value their team's input and create an environment that encourages even more open communication. And so it, there's this like virtuous cycle that, that, that we see with companies that have really, uh, or sorry, with, with founders that have very effectively understood that in order, again, you know, it, it's that, it's that same principle. If you want to go far, uh, 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 you, you know, you, go together. You, you go together, right? It's like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I completely um, uh, butchered that quote, but I, I, we did get it right in the book. But the, the point I was trying to make was um, when when you become um, uh, uh, when when you achieve that that working environment that really encourages open and effective communication. You see all sorts of benefits coming out of that, and and that's effectively what we're trying to get across with this chapter is to say, hey, you can do this alone, or you can build out a team. You can communicate well with your team, and then you get to the point where, and, and there's a great example of of um, uh, one of the Airbnb founders, Brian, I think, who even today uh, or or up until recently would be out on the road uh, maybe 20 days out of every month. And you do the math, and you realize there's really literally only 20 week work days um, in a month. But he'd be out there having dinners with people from his team, people that aren't even on his team, employees. He'd be traveling, visiting random cities, meeting folks from from within the company, getting ideas, soliciting feedback, trying to understand what the pulse of the company is. And that's the kind of founder that we want to we we're, we're trying to say you can become again if you employ all those skills and and the the, the five skills that we talked about earlier. If you can follow those things. Uh, and those steps, you then achieve this this nirvana of not just message by fit, but actually building a great company. Yeah, and building a high performance team, right? So some, some a team that's really crazy productive, and that's what every founder wants. And just to add to and underline what Jack said, um, founders can't, every founder wants results, right? Everyone wants results in their team, their business. The problem is you can't really dictate results. You can't miraculously make them happen. So based on the analysis Jack outlined, we really dissected how you can get results, how you can get a high performance team. And it's not just telling people, it's not just you know listening, it's, it's a bit more to it. And there are certain steps that need to be followed in the right order for it to happen. So it's worth actually you know, spending a few seconds on this. So you have to start with positive communication. So if you have negative communications at the beginning and just tell people to just get it done, you know, not in a startup environment, actually, you know, very few environments does that command and control work these days. So positive communications reinforces a strong culture. And obviously you can talk a lot about culture, but strong communications reinforces a strong culture, which leads to shared beliefs and values. And shared beliefs and values lead to desired behavior. And this is really what matters, right? So some people say, what's culture? Well, culture is what happens when the boss is not around. So these desired behaviors, regardless of whether someone's watching, looking over your shoulder, because you, you understand these behaviors, you internalize them, you believe in the company, believe in the culture and the mission, that's what leads to a high performance team. So again, to sum it up, it's positive communications, reinforces a strong culture that leads to shared beliefs and values, and that creates the desired behaviors on a day-to-day -day basis, and that is the foundation for a high performance, crazy productive team. Can I maybe give a bit of pushback here? Because I also see a big risk here, namely 
you do a very consistent, strong communication that contributes to very strong culture building, which in the end can also trigger a situation where it becomes very difficult as an individual in such a high performance team to question the current situation because you have kind of created such a strong narrative that when you have the idea that the narrative is no longer fitting with the reality of your company, that you might actually get into a trouble. And I think today, yes. quite some startups might face that problem because yeah. they are now in a different reality than two, three years ago. And how can you then kind of deviate from that very strong culture kind of narrative that you have built in the past yes. years? You don't want to create a cult, right? You're, you're totally right, Dries. Yeah. There is this risk. We see this risk very clearly. So what we are saying is that the strong culture needs to be based uh, in terms of internal communication that reinforces the culture on push, pull and exchange. So it's not just pushing it out, right? You know, this is it. This is it. You know, take it or leave it. It's it's to pull. Okay, what do you guys think? You need to actively pull the information, the feedback from the team, and we show that there are certain ways of doing this. And then it's exchange, and that's what um, uh, Brian at Airbnb does, as, as Jack just described. Just sitting down, one on one, having a meal uh, with one someone in the team doesn't have to be a direct report. Just keep your ear on the ground. Say, okay, does this really work? Does this make sense? Because what we see a lot, and the data backs this up, you're probably aware of this, that leadership usually thinks that strategy and, and business objectives have been clearly communicated because it's mm. clear to them. Uh, as crazy numbers, like 80% of leaders believe that, and maybe 20% of employees believe that, you know? So there's a clear disconnect. There's a clear mm. gap between, you know, understanding what the strategy and the direction of the business is between leadership and employees. And startups are better, uh, I think, in general, because they're not as, you know, siloed as, as, as big corporate but still there is this gap and and if you want a high performance team where people are aligned and work towards a common goal you need that strong positive communications yes not a cult but you want also the feedback that's true this is uh, sorry go ahead jack now just to add a bit of, a bit of flavor here so th this this actually came uh, a lot of this came also from uh when and when oliver and i were trying to figure out how to make this come to life and and you know like so I mean, some of the listeners will know that I, I worked in politics for over a decade, and we used to have the saying um, when we were running political campaigns and, and you know helping people get elected and then helping ideas kind of get get across the line. And especially when you're working in in, in such a communications heavy kind of environment, I mean, a political campaign is essentially a, a, a an ad machine, right? Like all you're doing is just pumping out communicoms and, and making sure that you're targeting the right people, um, and then measuring the conversion rates million times a day um and so we had the saying internally where um we'd test out a a, a strap line and then we'd go oh cool wait this is really going to resonate and there's an internal benchmark basically that, that says that um when the internal staff or the the team that, that's working in the political campaign has heard it so many times that they're ready to puke that's the moment where the public actually starts to listen and so it, the same concept applies to startups. We often think that, and, and, and even mature companies, uh, we often think that you know people understand what we're about. And, and actually, it, and I mean, I have this problem even today at Angel Invest. We're a fund that's been around for for four years now. We've invested in in hundreds of companies, uh, over a hundred companies, and people still think that we're something else when when you know we we may not have gotten the message across. Guys, I, I would I feel like we could spend so much time talking about this topic. You know, the, the topic of culture fascinates me. I had someone say to me, I was uh, meeting with a mentor today, and he said, uh, "Culture, culture drives strategy, and strategy doesn't drive culture." 
And I was unpacking it, and I remembered the line from you guys' chapter that I actually highlighted that said, uh, you can train for skills, but you can't train for culture. And I think this is a really interesting thought exercise a little bit, right? You know, like when all things are created equal, um, it's really important to hire based on on values. I think this is a struggle that many founders have, right? Where you're like, damn, I just want to take off a hat and I want to like give it to someone that's an expert in this field. And I'm, I'm you know, so, and this is interesting. Maybe I will segue on this real quick, Jag, to you specifically as, as an investor, which is, you know, sometimes investors tell you you should hire the best damn talent that exists out there and find the rock star and bring them on board and build a rock star team. But they may sometimes be culturally in conflict with someone who may not be not be as much of a rock star, but is very aligned with, you know, the purpose and the mission and the values of the organization. Do you have a preference? And does the book just kind of answer that already with the quote I just read? Pretty much. Uh, I think the, the, the simplest way to think about it is, are you building a long-term like company or are you just trying to uh, get some quick funding and please some investors, right? Again, it, it, the, the point is, in, who are we trying to please here? Who's the real audience? And so again, if it's legitimately to impress your investor who who says, "Hey, I've got this person who's who's he or she or you know performed really well at the last four companies, and they're going to be amazing at, at this company," great. But again, ultimately, this is your company, and this is something that I often remind the founders that that even the ones that I'm backing, and I'm saying, "Hey, this is your company." At the end of the day, you're the you're the moron who's maxed out your credit cards and, and <laughs> taken a home loan, and you're the person who's 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 uh, uh, you know, sticking your neck out of the line here. This is your company. I'm lucky enough and fortunate enough to be on your journey. Um, but I, I know that you know there's 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 different ways of looking at uh, um, uh, at that situation. Right, guys. So many things I want to cover, um, and we don't have the time. So I tried to distill my last question to you in a bit of a rapid fire format, and it it actually refers to my favorite part of the book which is, is the rapid fire cliff notes version of the book that you guys call 92 communications principles for unstoppable startup founders hits home. Um, so let's play a little rapid fire Q and a game, right? I'll name the principle and you respond to what it means and why it's so important. We got to keep it kind of brief, you know, otherwise we could be here all night, but I'd like to get through a few of them that I think are, are really poignant and could use a little, uh, explanation from the brains behind it okay ready so let's go i'm gonna start with number one as a company grows its biggest challenge always becomes communications explain that's actually a quote by ben horowitz uh it's from his book the hard thing about hard things which is fantastic obviously and, and shows the sort of pain blood sweat and tears you go through as a founder as you build his company and it's interesting that such an experienced uh guy who's seen it all in the startup world says this and writes this so what we make of this is that as a company grows communications always becomes more complex and it becomes exponentially more complex you have more investors you have more customers you have more people in the team especially internally it gets pretty tricky right so um, as the complexity grows it becomes this big challenge and our answer to this is well as a founder your communication skills need to grow in line with the company 
if your communications and leadership skills are behind the growth of the company, you stop being the right person for that stage of the company. Interesting example, I spoke to um, Johannes Reck, the, the founder and CEO of um, Get Your Guide last week for my podcast. And he's on, you know, they've been on this 15 year journey. And he says, well, I, I had to do this. I had to get coaches. I had to learn about branding. I had to learn about marketing. You know, he, he you know, he's he's a sort of science guy from background. So he took it on himself to learn about all these things so he can stay, could stay, and grow the company rather being sidelined. That's that's my interpretation mm-hmm. in the process. So yes, it becomes the biggest problem regardless of what you do. So you have to be prepared to meet that problem just as you have to prepare to meet other problems in business. And I think what makes this quote by Ben Horowitz valuable is that a lot of founders don't have this on their radar. So that's why it's number one. Nice. All right, next one. Number 19, companies move at the speed of trust. Easy. This comes from, um, I think it's Stefan Covey, I think, um, who's, who's um, an undeniable kind of expert on, on um, trust. And, and he talks about how trust is basically the currency of our time. Um, and here, I think, you know, in, 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 in very few words, trust is the, the fundamental element um, that basically impacts the speed and efficiency at which every company operates. The way that they make decisions, the way that they achieve their goals, um, and it's something that's basically earned. And this is the this is the part that I often like to remind founders about. It's something that's earned over time through being consistent and transparent and you know, keeping your promises and and acting with integrity. Awesome. All right, number the next one, and and this is one I actually learned from Oliver as he's helped advise me as I've been building a few businesses over the years. But uh, this one's number twenty-eight. The customer is the hero, never the company. Yeah, that's important to internalize. So once you accept that storytelling is important, as as Dries teaches the students, you also have to think through the structure and who plays what role, right? So to boil it down, there are seven steps in a good business story. You could use this as a skeleton, just fill it in. It's relatively um, straightforward. So a character has a... um, um, so it has a problem, there's a challenge. So a protagonist meets a challenge, then meets a guide. The guide gives them a plan, calls them to action, and that action and the plan avoid failure and lead to success. So this is basically how most stories are structured um, without getting too theoretical. Now then the question is, okay, who's the protagonist and who's the guide, right? So our point is that you as the company or the founder, you are not the protagonist, in other words, the hero of the story. And sometimes we think that we're the heroes because we solve this big problem. Um, Instead, your customer is the hero. You're the guide, right? You guide the hero in the story to the desired outcome. Interestingly, um, obviously when there's a hero, there needs to be a villain. So you also need to think about who's the villain in the story. And when you look at Elon Musk's storytelling, it's quite interesting, for instance, with, you know, Solar City and others, you know, um, he says basically their invention is the hero often, <laughs> but it's not him. And the villain is often something like pollution. Yeah, when you're a low cost airline, the villain is legacy airlines and you're the hero because you're choosing this innovative tech driven um, option. So just make sure that when you develop your company story, your personal story, that you don't make yourself as the hero because people will not be interested and you don't come across as very charismatic. It sounds just self-serving. Just a quick Maybe PSA here. Briefly, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, just a quick PSA. 
uh, what Oliver is saying is that you should not try and emulate Elon Musk and communicate like Elon Musk. Please, please, please do not. On, on behalf yes. of every single investor out there, I, I, I implore you, please. Elon, Elon does it well because he's authentic. That's that's his style. Uh, please do not think that you can replicate that easily. No. Indeed. Maybe maybe a follow up question because it's it's related to this principle, and I'm I'm really struggling uh, with that issue because today. I have a lot of startups, I think, having issues. Um, they're having troubles with their valuation. Some startups have to uh, fire people because the level of traction is less than they expected. And I'm actually quite surprised how silent most of the startups are about these issues. Um, and I I'm thinking, and maybe I'm totally wrong, but based on my kind of strategic thinking, I would say, this is the perfect time to kind of communicate bad news because nobody will be really surprised about it because there are macroeconomic circumstances that actually justify that you're, that you're in a tough spot. So what I'm really asking myself is why are not more companies actively, proactively communicating about the, the troubles that they have at the moment? Because I think often customers also want to know not only about when the company is doing great, but also when the company is struggling. Um, so that, that's something I'm really wondering about. So why are a lot of companies so silent at the moment and are not more proactive in admitting that they have problems? Well, this is tough because I think it doesn't fit into the narrative that they have built for themselves. If you have, for the last three years, four years, if you were a unicorn and, and you emphasized for example your status as a unicorn and actually this is oliver and i had this debate uh when we were at the at the tail end of writing the book where we actually actively chose to de-emphasize the word unicorn because we mm. didn't really think that was what founders and 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 people wanted to strive for it's a catchy name and and people know what we mean but we didn't want to make it sound like you know we wanted founders to aim to be unicorns again we want founders to build great teams that are highly function high, highly functioning great teams that build great products that satisfy customers uh and and that produce you know good impact on the world um so to go back to your question i think the the challenge that a lot of founders have and, and to be fair even investors are, are facing the same challenge it's how do you communicate uh, it, in a world that's in crisis, and again, we've got a chapter uh, towards the end of the book where where we make a distinction between normal crisis comms and then crisis uh, or communicating at a time of crisis. And, and the easy way to think about that is when your own house is on fire, that's essentially crisis comms. But when the world around you is on fire, that's communicating at a time of crisis, and it requires a different set of skills. And and you know, uh, so to answer your question. A lot of founders just don't have the skills. They have they've never actually experienced uh, times like these. They or even if they have, they've gotten very accustomed to the the you know, zero interest rate kind of phenomenon era that we lived in over the last few years. The the ZERP era, where they were building ZERP products and they built ZERP teams, and and so they're now having to be a little bit more adaptable. I think it's a matter of time. It, within the next. Um, few months we will start hearing more and more mm. um it, it's funny i actually spoke to a journalist a, a few weeks ago um who mentioned that she was starting to get pitches uh press releases 
where companies were announcing down rounds okay. um, where okay. they had actually, right? And and she was kind of asking the question, should they even be announcing this? Because yeah. how would a customer react if they learned that suddenly your future might not be so certain? Would they then want to reevaluate your contracts? Would they then want to say, maybe we should look at a larger company that's not going to go under? Um, and so there, there's a lot of different things that go into like how to build a narrative. And, and and this is probably one of the one of the one of the easiest ways to 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 think about this. Nice. Yeah, but if I, I think the the question raises is, is is completely valid. Um, if you have to announce layoffs, how do you do it right? And Jack and I actually have mm. written a, a piece on this, which will come out soon. But it's like, how do you fire right? Yeah, we're not advocating layoffs, but we're saying that if it's yeah. the right thing to do for the business because it protects the, the company and the future of the company, then of course you need to do it. Um, and you do this in the right way. So why would you announce it? Because there's an opportunity, because it will come out anyway. I think that's that's part of the rationale, right? And it's better if I control the story rather than the story leaks out through people I have had to let go or, you know, it's a small world, right? People may hear about it. So why do I not own and shape the narrative? And there's some good examples. There's some bad examples too, which we also list in the book. And the bad examples are usually when the CEO doesn't face the music, he's getting someone else to do it. It's a mass layoff. Uh, Elon Musk is a good example. People can't access the email anymore and wonder whether they've been fired. So very clearly these things are bad, wrong, don't do this. How do you do it right? Well, you take responsibility. As the CEO, the leadership, you face the music, you talk to the people, ideally individual, and if that's not possible, you know, at least in, in as personal setting as possible. Um, you don't give them any BS, yeah? you be transparent, you be authentic. And you you also try help to, to help them find new jobs. And there are some good examples where um, CEOs went on LinkedIn and said, unfortunately, we had to let these 10 people go. Uh, I can vouch for them. They're fantastic. You know, um, I absolutely recommend them. And as a result, these people found new jobs very quickly. So this is this is a good way about it. Also, what you need to keep in mind is that if you have to let 20% go, there's still 80% of the team and you need that 80% 80 to perform, right? That's the big risk that you destabilize the organization because it's not handled properly. And then you enter this downward spiral of, you know, another layoff, another layoff, customers run away, investors get nervous, etc. So you want to reduce the uncertainty on the side of the people who are still there and over communicate with them to ensure they understand the mission. They understand why this had to happen and ideally that they are safe now. So you want to get ugly early in a way to protect everyone else who's staying so you can focus on the mission again rather than the sort of salami tactic of communications and, and sort of drip feed of information. That's what you want to avoid. And, and and if we talk about trust and building trust and credibility, then you can. I, I've seen this couple of examples uh, a couple of times in our portfolio companies, and, and I've been recommending any of our portfolio companies that that have to let people go uh, again because out of the need to preserve the company's future, you could actually very very easily communicate to your existing employees how much you care about the people who've just left by making it a KPI to show how many you know what percentage of people. Have now found new jobs, right? And and if that number mm. is almost you know staying at forty percent for for a few weeks, well, it's clearly it's not a priority for you. And I think for me, the 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 lesson that I hope founders and, and exec teams will take out of this is 
maybe we should be a bit more careful before we just start hiring a whole bunch of people. Uh, I, 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 I like to believe that we like to, we always learn from our mistakes and lessons. Uh, we, we learn from our, from our mistakes and, and we learn a lot of lessons. Uh, and hopefully this isn't one that we repeat over again. Dries, I love that you asked that timely question, but you all, you guys also just butchered my rapid fire section. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to narrow down the rapid fire to just a couple more because I don't want to miss them. And, and one of them is one that I actually learned from Oliver not so long ago. And it really is something that I've been pondering. This is number 41. Customers don't buy what you're selling. They buy the outcome. Please explain. Yeah, exactly. So it's benefits and features, right? But if we take a step back, um, customers are not interested in us and the companies we build, the products we developed, right? They, they care about their own needs, their own pain points. So they want the outcome. And I think in selling and marketing, sometimes the mistake is made that people um, focus on the product and the features. They focus on you know what they believe makes the product great. And of course, the more you talk to your customers and more that you discuss the pain points with them, the clearer picture you get and you can actually address you know, the outcome that people want and often it boils down to a few things it can be wealth it can be health it can be um connection these are the big three right where does it fall into do you want you know what, what does my product achieve does it achieve more wealth does it achieve more health does it achieve more connecti connection and maybe saving time is the fourth one but that's really it um and th there's this great pro quote which um a lot of people may have heard as my famous harvard marketing professor who said people don't want to want to buy a quarter inch drill they want to a quarter inch hole and we looked at this and thought you know actually no one wants a hole in the wall what they want is a picture on the wall so you're not selling a quarter inch drill what you're selling is hey there's a we will make we will empower you to have a picture on the wall and that's what i want i want a pretty apartment so that's why i want so um when you look at all your messaging look at your sales materials in marketing i think it's really worth questioning Am I telling am I selling the outcome or am I selling my product? So, you know, take a good hard look at that. Great. Great. Okay, last one. Uh, the shortest one and I I found it very poignant, but number 73. Culture is destiny. Ah, this is the easy one. This is the easiest one because uh, mm -hmm. it tells you everything you need to know, right? The way a group or organization thinks um, the way it behaves, the way it operates um, as influenced by its culture will determine its long-term trajectory and outcomes. And yeah, rapid, rapid answer to a rapid question, how people are with each other determines the outcome, plain and simple. Great poignant answer. Guys, There's. I wish I could go through all 92 of these because it's really nuggets of, uh, of wisdom and uh, I gotta say, this book is—I'll—I'll uh, I'll do the plug this time and and hold it up. But um, the quote on the back, you know, turning communications into a superpower. As a person that loves the spoken word and believes that all good founders need to tell good stories, to have a a reference guide and to have these kind of principles breaking it down in a in a sophisticated but easy to understand way. I haven't seen anything like it before and you know you guys are my friends but i can honestly say this is one of the more valuable books or about building a venture that i have read in a long time so 
really well done. I wish we had time to dig deeper, but so it goes in this format. So I want to thank you guys very much for uh, joining us today. Um, and before I uh, close the doors on this chapter, want to give a, a quick plug where we can find you, where people can find your book and, uh, and how they can dig deeper into this really exciting topic. Uh, right. That was my cue, right? Uh, <laughs> finally, yes. You go to message machine, just, just message machine.com has all the links that you need. We're in the process of adding um, some bonus content and material because uh, founders have, have, have been messaging us and, and letting us know that they'd love um, some of the concepts explained a little bit more. And, and, you know, again, we're, we're, so there's a lot of stuff that we're building on top of, of work that's already been done out there. Um, and so we wanted to just kind of uh, make sure that we, we create a hub that people could come to um, to discover more about how they can build their, their, their ultimate message machine. It's not what we're saying, you should build a little message, message machine. It's your company at the end of the day, and you're building the message machine. And in addition to the book, which, as we said, is, is pretty evergreen and timeless, um, there's also the message machine newsletter, which we send out every week. And if you go to my LinkedIn, for instance, Oliver Owls, just find me on LinkedIn. It's easy. There's a link to the newsletter. Sign up. You actually get the first part of the book for free. And the advantage here is that we look at very topical and very timely topics. So things like how to fire right, um, how not to screw up your all hands meeting, or you know how to raise uh, raise money when you actually fuck. So the things that what Rory found us right now, um, we look at in the, in the weekly newsletter because obviously that's that's more in the here and now. Amazing. Awesome, guys. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was a, a great pleasure. We'll make sure to provide links in the, in the show notes. And uh, everybody read this damn book. It's a gem. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Garrett. Thanks, Trees. Bye. Well, folks. That was Oliver Oust and Jag Singh, co-authors of the seminal new book on founder communications, Message Machine, How Communications Will Make You an Unstoppable Founder. If you'd like to learn more about these two exceptional entrepreneur authors, we'll provide links to their works in the show notes. And if you'd like to pick up a copy of the book, you can find it on your country's Amazon marketplace, links to which we'll also provide in the show notes. And as usual, if you like this episode, don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a comment on your favorite podcast streaming service. Bis nächstes Mal.